So as we uh, started preparing to get back together and we were arranging chairs for the first time, had to do it again today, but I, uh, I was up here and, and noticed that uh, we hadn't cleaned the church building in a while, wasn't much of a need to do that, and my sermon from a long time ago is still sitting here, it was Daniel chapter 6. Uh, it was kind of weir- weird to see that there. Uh, the reason I say that is that uh, uh, in a little bit, we are going to resume Daniel, probably starting next week. Um, so we've had a little bit of an intermission. It was kind of timely, actually, as I thought about it. We had just done Daniel 1 through 6, and we had uh, done kind of the historical part of, of Daniel. Uh, and there's that natural divide right after chapter 6, and we go into to the last chapters of it, and it, it gets into the prophetic part of that. And we're not going to go through that, but um, I'm just kind of noticed a little bit uh, some appropriate thoughts kind of it brought back my mind certainly I didn't know that things were going to happen as they happened and uh, as I went through that series and started it in January but uh, looking at the precarious nature of, of Daniel's time and the other the other men there uh, they lived in a period of uncertainty and um, from the, from the very moment that Babylon engages them uh, they're, they're in this precarious nature and always constantly unsure. And, and Daniel lives through that through, through this whole time there. In fact, he, he takes it with him after, uh, even on into, into the, uh, the period under the, uh, the Medes and the Persians. And all this, just, uh, I, I can't imagine what that's like. And, and, uh, and we, we kind of have this isolated view of, of what we're going through and and what's happening, and, and a lot of times things seem precarious to us, whether it be now or other things that have happened in our, our life. If you, were, uh, if you grew up in a, uh, if you're older, you might remember kind of a similar thing that happened in the late 60s, uh, and, and, or maybe it was kind of the, the unemployment, uh, the, uh, the higher unemployment in the early 80s. Uh, there were just, there's been a lot of times where we feel a little precarious in life. And uh, when... Uh, when we look at societal upheaval, it's kind of nice to draw on the experiences of, of people who have broader experience in their lives and have gone through things uh, and understand things and can kind of say, okay, it's going to be all right. Because we want to hear, everything's going to be all right. We love that phrase. Um, imagine uh, a father in 1929 telling his boy everything's going to be all right so we go through life and uh the reason i ask that is because uh, we we go through life and, and and from the moment we are born we want to be told it's all right uh we're, we're barely able to understand the world around us, and I mean a short world around us, and, and, and we get a little boo-boo, right? and, and we want mommy to make it all right. It's going to be all right. And so kiss the boo-boo, and, and, and soon everything's all right. right? And, 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 and as our world expands just a little bit, we still want to be told it's all right. We want to someone to address the monsters under the bed. Right? Um, we get, we get a little older and our world expands and, and my, my best friend won't talk to me. And my boyfriend broke up with me. 
And, and, and the problems get bigger. And we still want someone to tell us it's going to be all right. And at some point in time, someone is now asking you to make it all right. You know, it was like, how did we transition? I was just wanting someone to make it all right for me. And now I have to be the face of, of, of confidence for somebody else. And I don't always feel, even as an adult, like I've got it together. I still sometimes would like someone to tell me it's going to be all right, but I can't afford that because I have to console somebody younger about it's going to be all right. But I'm supposed to make that transition. Where's my consolation? That's why I brought up an adult man, maybe in his 50s, 40s, an investment broker in 1929, loses everything and has to go home and tell his kids, it's going to be all right. A mother who's lost a husband on Normandy. And someone shows up with a flag in the driveway and has to tell the kids, it's going to be all right. We say the words, and, and we know that it's true, but you certainly can't feel it in the moments that you're saying it. You don't know how it's going to be true. And and so in these moments, we can only see about a foot in front of your face. So we want to address a vision problem. This is a vision problem. So we're going to look at some vision correction this morning. I want to see three things. So we're going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 14. Excuse me. 2 Kings chapter 6. Fourteen through seventeen says, Therefore he sent horses and chariots to the great army there, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of that man, Elisha, speaking of, when the servant of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounded with the city and horses and chariots, and his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray that you open his eyes so that he can see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. Well, I want to explain the backstory without reading the whole context here. Uh, Ben-Hadad is the king, uh, and he has planned several events to destroy the northern Israel, uh, the nation of Israel. And to to no effect, because every time he plans an ambush somewhere, God has given the message to Elisha, and uh, and it gets thwarted. So so uh, it was it was so common that the king naturally um, surmised that he had a spy in his court that was reporting, and he was getting ready to to kill his uh, or start going through his his advisors. When one of them said, "Listen, it's none of us." We're on your side. It's that, that Elisha guy. Every, every, he says, what you speak in your bedroom, he tells to the king of Israel. 
So he went and sent an army and said, okay, then we'll, we'll take care of him. And that's the backstory. He's going to take Elisha out of the way. Now we have to understand something about this servant. This servant has, is a new servant of Elisha. This, this servant hasn't seen what Gehazi seen. Gehazi was the, the servant up until uh, the previous chapter when he tried to uh, take some money uh, from, from Naaman. Naaman was, was healed. And, and, uh, and offered some money for this, and, and Elisha said, no, we don't take money for it. And then that guy, Gehazi, kind of went back and said, yeah, he changed his mind. Well, of course, he pocketed, and, and God said, well, you're going to have leprosy for the rest of your life, and your children, and their children. That is kind of be a family heirloom for you. So, so he was forced out of the city, uh, and so Elisha kind of now has a, a, a roster to fill. And uh, so, uh, so he has a new servant. And when you read this chapter, this servant has only seen one thing. This servant has, at this point, only seen Elisha float an axe head out of the water, which is pretty cool. But it's not exactly quite so impressive as the other things that Elisha has done. So this guy doesn't have a background with Elisha. And so Elisha says, listen, you kind of have a vision problem. There's something you're not quite seeing. It's something that Elisha has seen. Elisha has seen this one time before. He saw it when Elijah went up. And so we have a problem sometimes seeing the divine. We don't see the divine in the world going around us. All we see, uh, whether it be something political or something, uh, whatever the event is, historical, whatever, we see it as its event and nothing more. Because we determine the value of everything based on our five senses. And we heavily weight those five senses, especially what we see. What you read, what you watch, that is primarily what determines our evaluation of things. But we fail so frequently to see the divine. I've never seen the divine, not in this sense. I'm kind of like this servant here, I don't even know his name. But I'm kind of like this servant here, I've never seen it. And, and unfortunately, there's, there's no prophet that's going to come and go, say, there's that angel. See that? Oh, okay, I see what's happening now. I, I'm not going to get that luxury. So how does this apply to me? Well, Jesus said something that was important. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. In other words, Christ said, you don't have to see it with your physical eyes. That's wonderful. But you still have spiritual eyes to view spiritual things with. And blessed are those people who have the ability to see the spiritual in what is happening. To imagine the things that Christ is doing with the situations around us. Our natural vision is an obstacle to us. So what events in your life. This is, this is a, a time where you can uh, look back and reflect. What, what, what events in your life has God shown the divine to you? Are there moments in your life where a prayer has been answered? A precarious situation where God came through for you when there was no other answers? 
I think we've all had those moments. We've all know those things. And we can all point to medical things or what scary situations. I could go through time after time after time. Is this has a directly corollary to uh, how accident prone you are. Or your children. But we experience the divine, but we often fail to see it. And so as we look at the things going on around us, and, oh my goodness, it's never been worse than to see the divine. See the hand of God that will prevail after this. God is doing something. doesn't mean that God likes what is happening, but God will use it. See the divine. We'll see a thread here. That in all the three events that we're going to look at, we're going to notice that people felt surrounded. People felt surrounded. There's so many events... I'm completely surrounded. So I want to turn to Revelation chapter 20. A, uh, I, I sometimes hesitate to go here because there are some dramatic things and there's a lot of context that needs to be exp- explained with some of these things. So I, I don't want to get into interpretations of Revelation. I, I want to reference something uh, one of, uh, I think my, my wife's cousin, I think it was, posted something on Facebook and uh, it was just a meme and it said, just looking out my window to see what uh, chapter of Revelation we're doing today. And <laughs> it was funny, but kind of like, oh, well, I won't explain this to him. But um, it kind of feels like that, doesn't it? Another person posted and said, uh, I feel like we've forgotten about the killer bees or whatever it was. <laughs> But Revelation chapter 20, in verse 7 through 10, and we're not going to go through the entire context here. And he says, <clears throat> well, let's back up to verse 4. He says, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witnesses of, of Jesus. So he's talking about martyrs. For the word of God, they hadn't worshipped the beast or his image. We're not going to get into that. They had not received his mark on their foreheads or the hands. They had lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and Christ and will reign with him. A thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison, will go out to deceive nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog, Magog, together, uh, to gather them together for battle, whose numbers as the sands of the sea. And they went out upon the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. And the fire came down from God in heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of the fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented night and day forever and ever. Now, I don't want to get into all these symbols. I don't want to say, uh, it's very popular to say, this is what's going on right now. And it's always been what's going on right now. No matter what dramatic event happens in the history of humanity, someone goes, ah, I don't know that. This is the difficult book in the entire thing to read and understand. That's why God put it last. 
figure out the rest of it before you go there. But I do want to address something here. Because he says, there is, he says that they're going to surround the enemy, this end or whatever this period is. He says, it's, it's going to feel like you're surrounded. Once again, he says, you feel like you're surrounded. We are feeling, whether, whether we are in the apocalyptic time or not, it feels it. We have condensed into a small period of time a lot of things that taken individually over a longer period of time wouldn't feel so dramatic. But you just kind of compress it. and My goodness, I feel surrounded. I feel kind of overwhelmed. In the church where Katie's family is today has been told that they can attend but not sing. That feels kind of weird. That feels kind of like I'm surrounded, doesn't it? It kind of feels like I don't live in a country that I thought I lived in. Well, we have a vision problem once again. And one of the things we need to do is see the end. We need to see the end of things. Because as I said, one of our vision problems is that we just see right here. And I don't see the end of things. I don't know that the world is going to end very soon. As I said, I've heard too many dramatic sermons about this to get caught up in it. But the reason for using this text is to illustrate that whether we are or whether we're not, there's an end of the situation. One of two things is going to happen. Either God's going to come or God's not going to come. I mean, in the short term. Now, maybe this is the end. I don't know. I can imagine, however, it getting a lot worse. For example, I could imagine it would, the entire world would look like you lived in China. That would be a lot worse. So you would give a little context to what life is like here. I can imagine getting a lot worse. I, I can imagine the church feeling a lot more surrounded. Or maybe God's going to fix it in the short term and things will tick back up. I don't know. Let's see the end because here I know one thing. I can interpret one thing out of this text that we saw and read that really isn't that hard to understand. Satan loses. That's the end. You look out and it, and it looks really bad. And you can see all the forces of darkness and you imagine it. No matter how bad it gets, I know this is not a permanent situation because I know Satan loses. See the end. It feels really dramatic. And it feels really bad, but imagine Christians during the French Revolution probably thought the same thing. That was about 230 years ago. When they burnt Bibles. 
The man who led that charge to burn Bibles was a man by the name of Voltaire. They later printed Bibles in his home after he died. Someone, a publisher, bought it and printed Bibles in his home. God has a sense of irony. The devil loses in the short term and in the long term. In other words, the truth just tends to come out eventually. The truth tends to overcome eventually. Not just at the the last day on the planet, but just things kind of get discovered. So God allows things. He allows it to get pretty grim. And then God says one day, okay, stepping in. He does that at the end and he does that now. So things aren't really that bad yet. So seeing the end means a couple of things. It means, first of all, the knowledge that uh, when it can't get worse, God will rescue everybody. But it also means that we must be prepared for things to get there. Because if we're not there yet, that means it's going to get worse. And maybe it will get better before it gets worse, I don't know. But there's coming a time where, whether in our lives or somebody else's, it's going to feel a lot worse. So be prepared. See the end. But you're going to have to see right before the end too. You're going to have to see that Life is not always going to be nice. So if things go back to normal, then that means there's going to be a time where it gets worse. Because Christ is going to come at a moment when things can't get worse. That's pretty heavy. It's good news, but it's bad news, right? One more vision problem we want to address. And I want to turn to John chapter 17. And we're going to read the chapter. I'm only going to pull one thing out of it, but I want you to get the weight of this chapter. I should stop saying that this is one of my favorite chapters because I'm getting a, a really large amount of favorite chapters in the Bible. But this is one of my favorite chapters. John 17. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given to him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And I have glorified you on the earth, and I have finished the work you have given to me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men who you've given to me from the world, and they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known all the things which you give to me are from you. I've given them the words that you've given to me. They've received them, and have surely known that I came from you, and they've believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those who you have given me, for they are yours. And all are mine. 
all of all of mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Now I'm no longer in the world. But these are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those who you have given to me that they may be one just as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those who you gave to me I kept. And I've lost none of them except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled but now I come to you that these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but you should keep them from the evil one and they are not of the world just as I am not of the world sanctify them by your truth Your word is the truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. They also may be one in us. The world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me. I have given them, and they may be one just as we are one. I am in them, you are in me, and they may be perfect in one group. That the world may know that you have sent me and and have loved them just as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, who you gave to me, may be with me where I am. That they may behold my glory, which you have given me, For you have loved me before the foundations of the world. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. These have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Christ was aware of the two things that we've already mentioned. We're going to add one. He was certainly aware of the divine in this. He talks about God's glory. The glory that he had with the Father before the world began. And he was also quite aware of eternity. He talks about them being with him. Where he will go with the Father. So, so he has a, a vision of the end. He, he has this vision, but, but he adds one thing. And it is quite important to see it is to see the humanity. We've seen the divine, we've seen the end, but we need to see humanity. The world seems more divided than it ever has been before. Now maybe it just feels that way. I, I, I actually doubt that that's true. I just think we have more access to information and the ability to see it than we ever have before. I think that's the difference. But I think probably, especially based on Scripture, that the world has been more and more civilized as the church and the gospel have spread. That's my general understanding of humanity. I'm sure that there are moments and eras where things kind of dip a little bit. And maybe we're in that kind of a little bit of a downturn. But, but these distinctions have always been there. Wherever there's a slight difference, people will 
tend to look at the differences. Read through your Bible and, and, and look at Jew, Gentile, Sadducee, Pharisee, uh, Epicurean, Stoic, rich, poor. There's always divisions between people, and they are across political lines, religious lines. They're across philosophical lines. They're across economic lines, racial lines. Those things are all throughout your Bible. Sound familiar? It's still there. And so in this chapter, I just want to pull out two verses. I, I know we read it all, but I, I just wanted the weight of Christ's vision. Because Christ is the example of vision. Verse 11. He looks at two groups. Verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, to keep them through your name, those who you've given to me. Christ's first attention was to his church, that they stay faithful. His disciples, the ones that were saved, he said, I'm praying for these. When we think about things, it is important to think about our brothers and our sisters, and not just here, but in other places. And under whatever circumstances they live, and whatever things they go through, So he thinks of Christians. But verse 20 is interesting. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And Jesus had a lot of things to think about. He had a lot of things right up close that he had to think about. He's a couple hours away from being severely beaten and bled out just about. He's a few more hours away from being hung on a tree till dead. You got a lot of things to think about. And he thinks about people who aren't born yet. I pray on all those who will believe in me through their word. He prays for people 2,000 years later who will be fighting over something here and something there. Praying for them to hear a message from people who know the message and believe in it. Because all the solutions that are out there aren't going to fix anything. There's a lot of solutions that I've heard. There's a lot of things that... <laughs> that's not going to work, pretty sure. It's a song that we sing, Love Lifted Me. That is the solution. 
That is the only solution that is going to fix things. It is what guided Christ's vision in these moments. It is easy to look at the breakdown of good and bad because it seems justified. This person doing this thing is good. This person doing that thing is bad. We're pretty much used to it. It's a division like no other. Right? All the rest of them, we go, well, Jew, Gentile. I mean, come on. Jews are good, Gentile. I mean, it's just, it's, they're just people. We can look, okay, so there's this person, they have this viewpoint, and this person has this viewpoint. We can look at all those other divisions, and we can say, okay, we should be equal. We should kind of treat each other, but good and bad. I mean, you're bad. They're good. Peaceful protesters and unpeaceful protesters. That's a pretty, pretty sharp divide there. And God thought about all of them. How long did it take Jesus to think of the thief on the cross? A bad man. How long did it take him to think of a Roman soldier at his feet? How long did it take any of us to pray for Derek Chauvin? A man who kneeled on the neck of another man for nine minutes till dead. He's a bad man. How long did it take us to pray for his soul? It took me a lot longer than it should have. The challenge for us is to leave here and to see the past, the now, and the present, and the future. To see all of it. Really, we are with a mirage of a present physical world. And and what is going on is so much larger than this. And for Christians, it is nothing more than a distraction to get involved on, on either side of things, really. For Christians, the reality is human souls that Christ was concerned about. And in his dying moments, when he had so many other things to think about, Christ's concern was for souls. It wasn't for politics. It wasn't for laws that would prevent innocent people from being hung on crosses. It was for the souls of men.